Hello and welcome to The Space Between, a podcast about the vastness of our universe and everything else that is out there. My name is Colby Van Camp, and I'm the host of this podcast. But before we begin, I wanted to give you some information about me. I'm not a scientist by trade, but I'm rather a professional musician, journalist, and aspiring astrophotographer who has a passion for looking to the heavens, marveling in its beauty, and wondering what else lies beyond us in the final frontier. So with that being said, this podcast will be all about talking to experts about the cosmos and soaking up as much knowledge as possible. I'm super humbled you decided to join me on this journey. I'm very excited to have Professor David Kipping as the first guest on this podcast. Dr. Kipping is an astronomer at Columbia University in New York and is essentially the individual who wrote the handbook on how to detect exomoons around exoplanets that orbit distant stars from our own. He also is the founder and primary contributor of what is, I think, arguably the greatest space-themed channel on YouTube called Cool Worlds. The videos are highly informative, have fantastic videography skills, and provide layman explanations for seriously difficult scientific principles and ideas. That's truly a gift in communication, and I seriously recommend that you check out his channel because the content is just fantastic. David, welcome to the podcast. I so appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's a very kind introduction. I appreciate that. So I wanted to jump right in. And first, I've watched pretty much every one of the videos that you've put out on your YouTube channel. Uh, I think in a different life, I got my undergrad in music. <laughs> and I think in a different <laughs> life, if I had been any good at math, I would have totally become a scientist of some kind. Science is big in my family. My father was a, uh, my grandfather was a vet. My, uh, my father is a, a, like a person doctor. He's a physician. And then I'm, I'm, I'm nowhere near that. So if I was any good at math, I'd probably be doing something in science, but here I am. Um, but I wanted to ask, you have a number of topics that you've spoken to and you have research that you've done work on and primarily the one that you have done the most research on are exomoons. So can you just break down for us what exomoons and exoplanets are and how they've affected your research over the years? Yeah, we started looking for exoplanets about 30, 40 years ago. And actually the Nobel Prize was awarded to it a few years back for the first one around a sun-like star that was found. That was in 1995. So that's really when this game really got going, when we started actually discovering these things. And an exoplanet is simply a planet orbiting a star other than our sun. Our sun is a star, but there are many of the stars in the sky, of course. And for a long time, we suspected that they probably have planets like our own sun. And, you know, we're driven to look for these things and try and look for life, try and look for places that could be hospitable to life and elsewhere, and also just understand how unique our own solar system is. And then moons is kind of the extra uh, trick on there that, you know, not only do we want to find the planets, but now we're starting to get to a point where we can actually look for moons around those planets. And again, a big motivation is just trying to understand our uniqueness. Our own moon is this huge, humongous moon in the solar system. It's about 1%, over 1% the mass of our own planet. There's no other moon in the solar system that big in a relative sense compared to our planet. Um, we don't, it seems to have formed through this giant impact that happened billions of years ago. And it's even possible that moons like our own moon or a bit bigger could even be potentially habitable. And so there's, we have just many, many questions about what moons might be like out there. And I would say moons in the solar system are probably the most interesting places apart from the earth anyway. Yeah. So what got you into the actual dive into researching exomoons. In a video that you had created for the Cool World's YouTube channel, you talked about this uh, pretty extensively, but I wanted to hear it from you directly. Um, and, and you had talked about that at the time, it was very much kind of like, what are you doing? This is professional suicide to try and like research this. 
uh, but you went for it anyway. So can you kind of break that down for us? Yeah, um, I guess I got interested in it because to me it was just obvious. I, I knew a lot of my colleagues were interested in looking for planets, um, but you look up in the sky every night you walk home and you see the moon. So oh, most nights you see the moon. In New York City, it's a bit harder sometimes with <laughs> the clouds and weather we have. But yeah, most of the time you can see the moon. And so that was just always, every time I was looking up, I, I was thinking, well, surely there's other planets with moons out there. How come more folks aren't interested in this? And I did get a little bit of pushback. I mean, a lot of people were, I mean, the idea of looking for exoplanets was still pretty new. And I guess it's like a gold rush, you know, everybody and all the many astronomers from different fields who were studying binary stars or who were studying interstellar dust, all these different topics suddenly like changed fields. You know, it's like everyone just suddenly changing sport, I guess, and deciding they're going to play <laughs> basketball one year. <laughs> so everybody just dived into this one field because, you know, the money was good, I guess, or the, I guess the analogy would be the science was good in our case. And so everybody jumped into that field and, um, the idea of doing something even more out there to look for moons was considered, um, I guess, that not the low-hanging fruit. You know, everybody wants to pick off the low-hanging fruit. And that was basically, at the time, discovering Jupiter-sized planets that were very close to their star. We call those hot Jupiters. And I just, I've discovered many of those myself. But it just didn't, it didn't challenge me. It wasn't interesting. It was too easy. And I, I wanted a challenge and I wanted something that only um, myself or a few of the people were maybe capable of doing or could really make a mark. I didn't just want to be one of you know, hundreds of astronomers finding hot Jupiters. I wanted to try and do something different. But that, I did get pushback and people told me, you shouldn't do this. You should just do the safe thing of doing what everyone else is doing. Um, I think that's a good lesson in life that, it's often worth taking the plunge and taking the dive because it can take you to all sorts of interesting places. Well, and I love that you said that. Um, and first, it was just kind of like, yeah, I discovered all these planets and that wasn't very interesting. So now I'm going to try something else. <laughs> that would have that would have blown my mind if I I don't even have a telescope. Like I'd love to get a telescope <laughs> at some point. Um, but that's that's awesome. And I I personally identify with this idea of everybody has told you don't do it but you know to yourself that that's what you want to do. So you do it anyway, and it's been successful for you. And I, and I, I love yeah. the theme of being true to yourself and understanding yourself and knowing what you want to do. I think that's great. Um, so you kind of touched on this for a second, and I wanted to take a, a slight diversion, but you, what is funding like to, to even create uh, ideas like this to fund uh, your projects? I mean, do you have to go through the government? Are there private institutions? Because as a music person, as a music educator, there is no money. Nobody wants to give you money. Mm. And um, you have to become an expert at writing grants. So is, are you kind of in the same boat or because yeah. it's science, people are more interested or what What does that look like? Yeah, it's, it's, it is hard. I mean, um, you go to most uh, universities and astronomy departments aren't very well funded compared yeah. to most of the schools. You go to an engineering school and they're making patents, right? And they're, you know, they're, or even the physics department, they're making patents that the university can prof make a lot of profit off. Astronomers don't really produce basically any income for universities in a serious <laughs> way, or very little compared to many of those departments. And so, you know, we, are, we always do struggle for funding to do this kind of work. And you probably know that academics, probably like musicians, are kind of, you know, we could all change careers. You know, all of us could work in a hedge fund company and get paid 10 times more money. So we're not in it for the money. We're in it because we're passionate about 
looking out there and trying to figure out what we know our place in the universe. And when it comes to funding our research, um, it comes from a, you know, mostly comes from grants. Um, so NASA and the National Science Foundation both issue regular calls for grants where you can make a proposal. And I have to say, ExoMoons for a long time, we just couldn't get funded. And so a lot of it I was doing pretty much in my free time or you know, on, on the side, it was just unpaid labor, essentially. Yeah. And the stuff that was supporting my work was the, you know, looking for the hot Jupiters or, you know, the more I was, it was, I don't want to say it's not interesting. I was, I still found it interesting, but it wasn't my passion. Sure. Um, and so, you know, sometimes you do have to put in that labor on the side a little bit to, to get something going. And actually a couple of years ago, we got our first ExoMoon grant and we've won t- time on Hubble Space Telescope now um, to look for ExoMoons. So things are starting to get better. But um, when you compare it to other fields, so for instance, the measurement of exoplanet atmospheres is is really the big. You know, if you were gonna, if you were following the the, the funding, that's what you would do. You would look, you would try and detect the atmospheres of exoplanets. Very interesting science. Don't get me wrong. We could potentially detect the signatures of life in the atmospheres of exoplanets by doing that. So I totally get why that's interesting. Um, but at the end of the day, when we when we find an Earth twin and we smell its atmosphere, we're probably also going to want to know: does it have a Moon twin? Yeah. And so it's it, to me, it's a big part of that completing the picture that we have to see the full story. And uh, it has been difficult, but it's getting better to get to get funding in this field. Well, it wouldn't it if you're looking for an Earth-like planet, and then wouldn't it make sense to look for a Moon as well? Because would that not influence how the atmosphere of that planet exists or am i way out in left field on that one no it's, it certainly can have influences i mean probably the biggest influence in the atmosphere is a little bit indirect and it's our own, our own moon does this to some degree so if you took away our moon the orbital axis of the earth is tilted by about 23 degrees as maybe some of you know and that's what gives us our seasons so if, if it was tilted like zero degrees and no tilt at all, we wouldn't have seasons. Summer, winter, it'll just be the same. And the more, the greater that tilt, the more extreme the seasons get. Um, the most extreme would be it was tilted all the way on its side, and then for six months of the year, it would just be you know basically in daylight and like a, you know a scorching extreme summer. Near the six months, it would almost freeze the planet over on the, on, on the other hemisphere. So um, that axial tilt is stabilized by our moon. So you take our moon away and Jupiter would most likely perturb in simulations we see this, perturb the earth over. And so we may not have even been able to, you know, have agriculture civilization as we know it, was it not for the moon, for having such a large moon. And so in that sense, it has a quite considerable impact is thought on our climate, I should say really rather than our atmosphere um, but in turn, that obviously affects our atmosphere. So, yeah, there are big effects. It's a big part of the story, and um, I think uh, the idea of looking for, for moons has touches many, many different aspects of what we care about when we think about planets too. That's fascinating. I mean, because on one side you have like perpetual uh, Iceland, you know, daylight all day, and then on the other right. end it's darkness all night. That's for six months. I mean. That's that's wild. That's really cool. So I'm going to take a sidestep into a different research area that you have talked about in your in your channel. Mm-hmm. And um, so 
I had to take statistics twice in my undergrad, <laughs> so I'm not a statistics <laughs> wizard, but um, you study and utilize a mathematical principle called Bayesian statistics. Could you just explain that to us and like how that works? Yeah, I mean, we're all Bayesians. People don't realize that. We're all Bayesians. And um, it really just means that you're accounting for prior knowledge rather when you do your probabilities. So, um, you know, one one very simple way of doing probability is just to basically count up how often an event happens. And that's about it. And so let's say um, on one week, you're waiting for a bus and you just count up how often does the bus arrive on time at your bus stop. And from that one week's worth of data, you could try and estimate um, what the probability of the bus arriving is. So let's say eight times out of uh, 10, it arrives on time. So you give an 80% probability. Um, now, a Bayesian would look at it a little bit differently. And a Bayesian would say, well, I don't just know about this week. I also know about other contextual information. So maybe I read in the newspaper that um, there was going to be issues with uh, the buses this week, like they're doing some kind of uh, servicing on buses. And so maybe I might expect the rate to be lower this week than usual. And so if you say, okay, eight out of 10 times it came, you probably think, well, actually, probably most of the time it's going to, you know, maybe nine out of 10, 10 out of 10 times I might expect it in the weeks to come. And so you're adding in extra contextual information. Another example might be um, in the past, uh, to flip it around either way, you might know that, um, hey, I've been waiting for buses for years and eight out of 10 is actually really unusual. Something, uh, it's usually way, way lower than that. Like usually like half the time it's not it's not coming on time. Sure. And so it's adding in that extra information. So that's what we do in Bayesian statistics. You just try to fold in additional, we call it prior information into the mix rather than just um, counting counting events from the one bit of data you've got. Yeah. So it, it's difficult to, you know, that's a simple example. We can apply it in many, many different ways. This, what we mean by this contextual information. Okay. No, that's great. That's a, thank you for breaking that down because in the, in the videos that you've talked about it, you do a great job of talking about it. But at the same time, I was also just sitting here thinking, how on earth does that even work? And how, how do you even calculate that? <laughs> like what, are, yeah. what, how, how do you even have to calculate taking into account like prior knowledge, that's that's crazy. Because I mean, we as humans understand prior knowledge, I think rather intuitively, right? You just know that, well, that person has a different background, so they must understand something about this because of cultural significance or whatever. But now we have science and mathematics that can explain that. So that's, that's fascinating. So using Bayesian statistics, you wrote a paper to calculate the likelihood of life in the universe and whether that life would be intelligent or not. Could you just kind of walk us through that and how that process worked out for you and how you got that idea in the first place? Yeah, I mean, this is a really tricky problem. Obviously, we don't have, it's, and it's the ultimate question, is there life on other Earth-like planets? We actually do know now that there are similar-ish planets to the Earth that we found. And so the, the next question we're asking is, you know, how often does life get going on them? The only data point at this, at this moment in time that we have is ourselves. And so this, is, this gets really kind of um, trippy when you start trying to understand ourselves and trying to build data from that. Because had life not started here, then we wouldn't be here to talk about it. So how can we really use that data point as a fair sample? You know, it's kind of like talking to um, celebrities 
and asking them what their typical, you know, income is, and then seeing, and then those celebrities saying, well, that, this must be the typical income of, of the average American. But they're an extremely biased sample. You're talking to the winners, you know, of, of this celebrity game. You're not talking to, you know, regular Joes. And so um, it's the same way when you look at the earth. We're, we are a, 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 an, perhaps an unusually successful planet. We don't know. That might be true. And if that is true, then taking ourselves as a typical example is wrong. In fact, maybe most Earths never end up with life on them whatsoever. And then the fact we happen to live on a planet with life on it is not a coincidence because we wouldn't be here to talk about it were that not true, right? So this is the kind of trippy, <laughs> trippy aspect of um, statistics we have to get our heads around. And so um, in that's been well known for a long time. And then I guess what I took in my paper was to take a little bit step further and take the timing of life. And so the other fact we know about life on Earth um, is that life started very quickly on our planet. The, uh, the Earth's about just over 4 billion years old and life appears to have started about 3.8 billion years ago. So pretty quick because, you know, once oceans started forming, we see evidence for life. And so a lot of people would take that as evidence that, okay, life started quickly, therefore it must be an easy process and therefore, we should believe that life is common. Um, and the fallacy of that argument is pretty much the same thing as what I just described, that what if, as far as we can tell, it took you know, about 4 billion years to go from simple life to something like us that can do paleontology, that can dig up fossils, that can do statistics. It took, you know, it took that long for someone to be introspective, essentially, to emerge on the Earth. And there's... That's actually quite close to the end of the clock. In less than a billion years, the Earth will be uninhabitable due to the evolution of the sun. So we arrived at four fifths of the of the of the journey. You know, if you were reading a chapter book, we're in pretty much the last chapter. Is when the human story actually begins in the history of Earth. And so, if that's typical, if it always takes say four billion years for intelligence to emerge, then the fact that life started quickly is not. Um, is a necessity to our existence. Wow. And so had, had life started, say, at the one billion year mark, rather than right at the beginning, there wouldn't have been enough time on Earth for, for something intelligent to ever have emerged on the planet. And thus, the early start to life isn't actually interesting. It's, it's, a, it's a prerequisite to us being here rather than um, telling us something about how easy or hard life is. So my plan, my paper really wanted to like dig into that inception, mind bending, <laughs> trippy, <laughs> trippy fact, sure. and um, apply this full rigorous framework to it to try and understand what's really going on. So I, this is this is more anecdotal than it is anything else. But my uh, my wife is huge into Doctor Who, and um, has made me watch it. I've resisted for a decade, and finally I, I broke down. And said, "Okay, I'll watch it," um, and it's been it's been fun. But there, you know, in the show, there's this, the great and bountiful human empire in, you know, whatever year, uh, it, because of where we are in the life of the sun in relation to the earth. And we're in like the last chapter, as you put it, what's the mm. shot of, of there being a great and bountiful human empire in, you know, um, a billion years from now, or is it just like, no, we're not, yeah. not going to write mean, that. Yeah. There's two, there's two reasons why one might be skeptical about that. Um, one is that when we look around our own galaxy, uh, we don't see any evidence of galactic empires anywhere. I mean, if I mean, 
it's possible they're just very um, quiescent. They don't modify their planets in any way. They don't modify their solar systems in any way. They don't send out many spaceships. But, you know, really, if there are very advanced civilizations who are engineering stars and doing that kind of stuff, we really should see that, and we don't anywhere in the galaxy. And in fact, we've even studied another 100,000 nearby galaxies for that, and we don't see it around another 100,000 nearby galaxies. So something is odd. We call this the Fermi paradox. It doesn't seem to be anyone super advanced out there, but maybe there are lots of folks similar level to us. That's certainly possible. The other reason why one might be skeptical about this is that, um, it, again, it kind of comes down to this uh, this storybook, this chapter idea. And um, if you were, if you, if there was a galactic empire one day, and humans go on to inhabit the entire galaxy, then there would be trillions upon trillions upon trillions of individuals who would eventually live in the future. And if you Count if you lined up all of these humans from basically when we first evolved to the end of this galactic empire, whenever that happens, you would find us, me and you right now, living in pretty much like the first sentence of this entire story. (laughs) And that's also kind of unusual. You wouldn't, you mean, from a statistical perspective, you normally expect to find yourself somewhere fairly central in the position, we call that the mediocrity principle. And so it's, um, if, if you use this argument, it's called the doomsday argument, and say, well, we're probably halfway along the number of human beings who will ever live, then um, there's been about 100 billion human beings who've ever lived on Earth, of which about you know almost 10 billion are living right now. Um, and so that means there's probably roughly another 100 billion to go. But because population is so high right now, that's actually only about 10, 20 generations or something. And so um, this is called the the famous doomsday argument, and it predicts that, you know, the end is unfortunately not that far off. Um, However, a a way to completely undermine this argument is to say that human experience is very different. And so you're lining up humans now to humans in a trillion or a million years or something. But fundamentally, what it means to be human will change. You know, maybe they'll have like cyborg implants or something, or they'll <laughs> upload their minds to the cloud. And so their experience is not comparable to our own. And so you can't, this argument of lining everyone up in, in line and calling them all equal is wrong. So, yeah, we're getting a little bit um, out there here with some of these ideas. But, I, you know, it's, I think that's certainly a, a possible argument. But, for me, I, I just think let, let's just focus on the present and try to, you know, in, in you know the next 50, 100 years, try to keep ourselves going, try to keep ourselves alive and solve the problems on our planet. And um, hopefully the answers about other civilizations will reveal themselves in time. Okay. So now that we've kind of broken down Bayesian statistics and kind of, is there life out there? We don't know. Will humans continue? Very possibly. Could they also not? That's also very possible. It's kind of a giant question mark. Uh, we just kind of have to settle for the fact that it's a giant question mark. Um, but so in the in the idea of interstellar travel, you produced a, a paper that I just thought was mind-blowingly fascinating. It's like the interstellar movie, right? Or it's, it's just, I, I, it blew my mind when I watched this, and it's the halo drive. The idea of using black holes and a laser to essentially loop a laser around a binary black hole system, hit yourself and use the laser as it speeds up for free around the black hole to propel 
up to relativistic speeds. So that's like, uh, I guess, the Halo Drive for dummies. Now, could you give us the the the, the beefed up version of that? That was pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was pretty good. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that was, that, the idea is, um, is, is really pointing out that, you know, if you want to travel between the stars and you want to, especially if you want to travel between the stars at high speed and with lots of mass, like a big ship, then unfortunately just the the kinetic energy of such a vessel is just the amount of energy that requires greatly outweighs sort of the production of our planet in a year and so this isn't even an issue of before we get into like you know propulsion systems or um you know antimatter systems or whatever you're going to do just the amount of energy we produce is just way off what's necessary for very fast travel between the stars, sort of uh, approaching speed of light type speeds. And obviously, we'd like to get to that speed because it would just make our journeys much quicker. Yeah. And so, um, one of the biggest sources of energy in the universe uh, potentially is black holes. Um, and so, what, what we try to point out in this paper that was um, published, yeah, must be like three or four years ago now, was that you can kind of bounce a ping pong ball of a black hole that's how i often think about it so if you have something if you have like a wall imagine a wall that's coming towards you at high speed and you throw a ping pong ball at it i guess it could be like a racket or, or a bat as well and as it comes off it it's going to return with much higher speed because that wall or that bat's moving in the opposite direction very fast and so you're going to steal kinetic energy off the wall. The wall will actually slow down a tiny bit when you do that, or your bat will slow down when you make contact with the ball. And so we want to kind of find a way of doing that in space. And black holes allow you to do that because of their intense gravity. Um, it's possible to essentially whip around them and do these 180s in your spaceship. You can also do um, 180s around um, neutron stars or white dwarfs or, or really or even just planets as well and do these 180s but the problem is um, if you have let's say two planets or two stars orbiting around each other if you want to get them to be orbiting quickly which is to say you want your bat to be moving fast then they have to be very very close to each other the closer they get the faster they, they spin around one another it's kind of like the same as a penny drop. You ever thrown like a charity penny drop? As it swirls around, it gets closer and closer towards the hole. You'll see it spins up, gets faster and faster. The same thing happens with orbits. So you want two objects which are orbiting really, really close to each other. And black holes are just the smallest thing you can possibly have. And so they can get very, very close to one another and have high speeds as they revolve around one another. And on top of that, um, you have to be careful about flying your spaceship into this thing, right? So you could do a gravitational assist. We do that in the solar system all the time. The Voyager spacecrafts did it, Galileo, Juno did that recently. And so there you basically aim your spaceship and you fly, in this case, very close to that black hole or the pair of black holes. And you try and time your trajectory so that you whip, whip around, do a 180 and get lots of speed off it, a gravity slingshot. That's a good idea, except for the fact you're flying your spacecraft into basically a pair of black holes, which are moving at the speed of a blender, right? So <laughs> this is a precarious maneuver, to say the least, <laughs> for your crew. And that had actually been proposed um, by Freeman Dyson years ago. And so I saw that paper. I thought it was kind of a cute idea, but clearly impractical to, to fly your ship into this environment. And so I just suggested that because it's a black hole, 
or actually he originally was using neutron stars, I switched down to black holes. But if you use a black hole, light can also do a 180. So you don't even have to throw your spaceship in there. So you stand back at a safe distance and you shine a laser beam. And instead of shining it dead on at the black hole, if you shine it dead on, it would just, as you probably know, it would just fall into the black hole and never come back out. That's yeah. the nature of black holes. But if you shine it just to the side, so it just misses, then the gravity of the black hole is so strong that it will bend light round like a boomerang. It's actually called a boomerang geodesic. And it will come back round to like a mirror and come back to you. So actually, if you looked off to the side, you could see your own reflection from a black hole, which is kind of, you shine, you know, your, your, the light of your face would whip around and come back to your own eyes just off to the side. So it's a pretty uh, trippy thing to imagine looking at black holes. And so we can use this effect. The light whips around and the light wants to speed up Right, because it's 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 coming off a moving wall that's heading towards it essentially, so it's moving fast. But light can't speed up. Light is told we're by Einstein's theory of special relativity that light always has to move at, at the speed of light in a vacuum. And so instead of speeding up, it changes color and it becomes bluer. Bluer light has more energy than redder light. And so that's what it does instead. The kinetic energy gets transferred into the color energy, essentially, the frequency energy of light. So the light comes back with more energy, comes back to your ship, and you can basically harvest this. Um, light also has momentum. Um, we actually use that for solar sailing in the solar system a little bit. There's been some tests that you just basically get a giant sheet of aluminum, essentially. You put it out, and light hitting it will slightly push it out. And so we're using that same effect, but just kind of on steroids here. Mm. The light coming back, you not only do you get all the energy you fired, so you, you, know, you, you put your nine volt battery into your laser, comes off, you get all that, all that energy back, so you recharge your battery, plus you get more energy back than you started out with because the black hole has, has changed the color from red to blue light, so you get more energy off. And so you can actually use this to accelerate and potentially accelerate up to um, fractions of the speed of light. <laughs> that's, that's just mind-blowing. So you need the keyest two black holes. Where are the closest two black holes to us in, in the Milky Way? You don't necessarily need to. You could get away with one. So the, uh, we, so far, I've been describing it as if you need to. That's true. You can actually do something a little bit more advanced and use one, but the black hole has to be spinning and spinning black holes um, have this effect called frame dragging, where they literally drag space-time along with them as they spin. And so you can use the same effect there to, to pull it off. So you just need a spinning black hole nearby. Um, in the Milky Way galaxy, there is something like um, 10 million to 50 million black holes just wandering around our galaxy. The problem is we don't know where the vast majority of them are. Um, but just from that statistic, we know we know how many there should be because of how many high-mass stars there are, which eventually die and form these black holes. So we know pretty well how many there should be. Of course, they're extremely difficult to find. Um, but using that calculation, you'd expect the nearest one to be within sort of anywhere from like five to ten light years. So in our stellar neighborhood, um, in fact, some people think there might be another type of black hole called a primordial black hole that could have formed during the Big Bang, essentially. So when the early conditions of the universe were very, very dense, those densities could have been so high that black holes could have formed not from stars, but from basically the soup of material from which the universe formed. And it's even been hypothesized that there might be one in our solar system. 
So you probably heard that um, there were, you know, Pluto was demoted as a planet. It was no longer a planet. <laughs> yeah. And then later on, someone claimed, another team claimed, there is actually another planet out there called Planet Nine. They started calling it. It's a bit further out than Pluto. We've never detected Pluto directly, but we have good reasons. Uh, sorry, Planet Nine directly, but we have good reasons to suspect Planet Nine exists okay. because of its gravitational influence. And it has been suggested one of the reasons we're struggling to find it is because it's a primordial black hole. So it would be basically the size of a bowling ball, the black hole, <laughs> and it would be about 10 times the mass of the Earth. And that, if that's there, that would be perfect. You could basically use that as your halo drive accelerator. So, um, yeah, there could, be, there could be black holes much closer than we probably uh, realize, although um, t- finding their location is very challenging. How close, how, how long would it take if, if you were able to detect there's this bowling ball black hole out past where Pluto is, how long would it take you to get there? Is that achievable in a human lifetime or is that still far enough away that's kind of like, ah, we just wasted, you know, 20 years to get there and now everybody's too old? Yeah, I think I think it is achievable. It's, um, I mean, whether a human being would, would really want to do these kind of trips because the G-forces involved are, of course, like huge and things like this as well. So maybe it would be a robotic explorer. But in any case, the, the time span... To get to Pluto is, is of order of sort of 15, 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's uh, it's probably around sort of three decades, more or less, to fly out to where Planet Nine would be okay. um, with current rocket technology. But we're developing faster rockets all the time. And um, I think it's quite possible that number would be shaved. In fact, we're, we, we're working on a somewhat top secret project actually <laughs> to try and do something like this and actually accelerate um how fast we can get ships to move in the solar system and be, and to leave the solar system much faster than rocket technology can wow. so uh, i don't want to give give the game away but that's um we have a, <laughs> a couple of students working with me to develop this idea and we're quite excited about it that's really cool there's a there's a joke in the in the music community because people find music theory to be so difficult that it's kind of like, it's not rocket science, it's music theory. Um, and like <laughs> the, the converse, it's not music theory, it's rocket science. So <laughs> I, I feel an affinity with rocket scientists in that way uh, on a, on a, uh, like a, a joking level. <laughs> I know nothing about rocket science. Um, so, so talking about bending light, this is where we're getting to the closing of this interview. And then also like m- the greatest thing that I've enjoyed out of your channel on YouTube. And it's the telescope, and and taking light that comes around the Earth and essentially turning the Earth into a massive telescope. Could you just kind of layman explain that for us? Yeah, I mean, for astronomers, the bigger the telescope, the better. Bigger really is better for for when it comes to telescope size. I'm afraid, and. Um, you know, astronomers have been trying to find tricks to make our telescopes as large as possible for a long time. Now, you've probably seen this, there was an image of the black hole in the center of our galaxy and another one, M87, that were taken with what was called an Earth-sized telescope. Um, the ETH is called the Event Horizon Telescope. And so that sounds like kind of similar to this idea of turning the Earth into a telescope idea. However, that's a little bit different. In that case, you really just have lots of small telescopes all over the Earth, and you combine the images together. Um, now, that's really not a, that gives you um, one of the two things that big telescopes give you. There's angular resolution. How small of a thing can you resolve on the sky? 
But then the other aspect is amplification. How much brighter is that object getting versus just having you know, your eyeball look at it or a small telescope look at it? And by combining lots of small telescopes, you don't really get very good amplification. And so what I wanted was to find an idea where we could basically literally have a telescope whose size, whose mirror was the size of an astronomical object, whether it be the Earth, Jupiter, or the Sun, something like this, some vast, vast size, because that would give you incredible amplification. So you'd be able to detect signals that were just incredibly faint on the other side of the universe, or even um, detect very, very uh, faint sources like the city lights on another planet. So someone in their apartment building turned their lights on across an entire continent, that would be detectable with these kinds of Earth-sized telescopes. Of course, it'd be great for looking for life out there. So in this idea, um, we were, I was inspired here by previous work on, again, I'm trying to, I keep emphasizing this because so much work is built, built upon the shoulders of giants. You have to, and you have to read to catch this, right? You're not going to get this unless you're reading what's going on sure. and, and keeping your head in the game. And so I was reading papers back in the 70s, and there was this paper by, um, that, well, I guess even Einstein had originally kind of thought of it a long time ago. And the, the idea was to turn the sun into a giant telescope. And the idea was, to, again, similar to what we've just been talking about, light bending through gravity. So the sun has gravity, not as strong gravity as a black hole, of course, because it's, it's a much, much larger object. So at the surface of the sun, the amount of, uh, ang the amount of deflection that light takes is pretty small, but it's, it, it means that eventually light would come to a focus because it's, it's like a, it's bending light in the same, by the same angle all the way around it. So light will all converge to a singular point. And that point is about um, 550 times further out from the sun than the Earth orbit. So that's, again, beyond the orbit of Pluto, yeah. way beyond the orbit of Pluto. And so it has been pressed for a long time, hey, we should fly a spaceship out there, put a telescope there, and then we could use the sun as a giant telescope. And the, I, I, that's a great idea, but the problem is it's pretty impractical. I mean, it's, it takes a long time to fly out that way. Yeah, and then how do you even station keep it, you know, keep it in the right place at the right time? It's just, it's, there's a lot of challenges with it. Yeah. And so I was thinking, well, could we do something closer to home? Could we use the Earth? The obvious reason why most astronomers would not even think about using the Earth is because the Earth has nowhere near enough gravity to do this. So it, you know, for, I think for most people, they would give up at that point. <laughs> um, however, I did a master's project when I was a student on this thing called the Green Flash. Maybe some of your listeners have seen the Green Flash or heard of the Green Flash. But it's, it's, if you watch the sun at sunset, um, just as it dips below the horizon, you can see the last bit of light. You get this little flicker of green, if you're lucky, and the conditions are just right. And that's because blue light bends through the atmosphere through an effect called refraction more than green light does, and green light bends more than red light does. So once all the, once basically the sun's red disk has dropped below the horizon, all the red light's gone, um, but a little bit of that green, it's like a curveball, can basically swing around a, around the horizon still reach your eye through this bending. And that's where you get a green flash. In some rare cases, people report blue flashes. It's really hard to get a blue flash because Earth's atmosphere scatters blue light. But in principle, there should be a blue flash as well. And so the idea is, you know, since we know Earth's atmosphere bends light, we know that because we've seen green flashes, is it's a well-reported phenomenon. Um, it's a well-understood phenomenon as well. Then in principle, there should be a point in space where light, a light source from behind the Earth would bend through the atmosphere and come to a point. 
And it turns out that point is about two thirds the distance between the Earth and the Moon. Hmm. So much, much closer. Yeah. And it's not a it's not a sun-sized telescope. That's true, but it's still pretty big. It's an Earth-sized telescope. <laughs> um, and so I wrote this paper that calculated how big this amplification would be ended up being sort of of order of about 50,000. So if you had a one meter telescope, it's essentially like having a few hundred meters equivalent size telescope for free. You just put a one meter telescope at this focus point and it becomes a uh, 300 meter telescope basically for free just by the earth doing that for you. Um, And so you get this huge amplification. It is a challenging uh, engineering problem or technical problem because the Earth's atmosphere is not stagnant. You know, when we use a telescope, it's just a piece of glass. It's a mirror. It's not changing. Uh, ideally, it's not changing in, in time. The Earth's atmosphere is changing in time. It has weather. It has, um, you know, pressure uh, gradients. And so all of that is going to affect the quality of the light that comes through. Um, but we have this whole field now called adaptive optics, where we can basically correct using these very sensitive mirrors. We can correct for all these slight changes in the Earth's atmosphere. And so using that kind of technology should be possible to uh, recover this light and get this huge amplification. So that's the idea of the telescope. Um, And the other thing I just say is that you can not only use it as a telescope, which was my original idea, but you can also use it as a transmitter. You could do the reverse. And put put your, your ham radio there ping it out and the earth becomes an earth-sized transmitter for you it gives you enormous radio boost so we calculated for jupiter if the space there's a spacecraft around jupiter right now called juno if juno used the sun it used jupiter to do this so we call that the joviscope instead of the telescope <laughs> joviscope you could basically get like uh 4g even 5g speeds of download speeds off it. Whereas at the moment it takes like, you know, a few hours to download one image yeah. off the thing. It's more like your dial-up, you know, your old dial-up <laughs> telephone internet speeds. Yep. And you could basically upgrade that to 5G speed. So you could do like telepresence on Jupiter <laughs> if you um, were able to use that effect. So I think that's an also incredibly exciting for like a solar system internet. You <laughs> yeah. can use the planets as your boosters. So have you picked up the phone and called Elon Musk and said, hey, I've got a project for you and we need to put a telescope right out here and then I can discover my exomoons unequivocally. They're there and we can all be really famous because of it. Have, have you have you chatted with anybody like this? <laughs> well, no, I haven't chatted with Elon Musk, but um, we, we've had some uh, interest in Europe from a couple of space companies that are uh, working on developing uh, ideas in this in this way so they want to they want to fly something i think they're, they're sort of planning a mission to mars and they would like on the way to mars to sort of turn around and test the idea mm. and use the earth as the as the telescope that's cool um, we also reached out i reached out to the jpl teams as nasa jpl who run the juno mission which is around jupiter right now as i said and i sort of begged them or asked them would they be willing to test this? Because that was the easiest test. They could just ping a radio signal and we should see it. But they would have to reorient the spacecraft to get into the right position. And of course, they've already got a mission plan, a mission objective. They've already planned out how much fuel they've got in the tank and they want to maximize the science return from their fuel. So um, they they weren't game to just sort of (laughs) this random (laughs) professor at Columbia, let's just try this joviscope idea, you know, and maybe waste a bit of fuel in the way. So yeah, unfortunately it's not been easy to um, get, 
get anyone to test it yet. Um, we are we have a project in my group where we're using satellite images of the Earth, but sat, but the the satellite in question actually lives far enough away from the Earth that we could potentially see this effect. Mm. It's not ideal because the Earth is very bright and really any telescope system you'd want to block out the disk of the earth and just keep the atmosphere we normally call that a coronagraph and it doesn't have a coronagraph but it might still be possible to at least prove the principle of the effect in these archival images that's sort of what we're focusing on at the moment and then uh, if we can prove it works then hopefully there'll be more interest cool so i have like three rapid fire little questions that i this is how i always close out my interviews um and i try to do something weird and fun so the first is Crocs and socks, yes or no? No. <laughs> Incredible. Uh, that's that's the general consensus. Every once in a while, I'm like, have somebody's like, yeah, I love Crocs and socks. I wear Crocs and socks all the time, and I'm like, you must be a serial killer because nobody does that. Okay, so no, no to Crocs and socks. Secondly, you live in New York. Do you have a sports team that you follow, or is it like science only? I mean, not really. I think I only really get into sport during the World Cup for following England back mm-hmm. home. And that's sort of my uh, my excuse to get back into sport. And the Olympics, I always like. But um, yeah, I don't follow a lot of sport. I do like playing sport. I used to do a lot of taekwondo as a kid. Really? That's um, I like running. I like going to the gym a lot. I think it's really important for your mental health and your mental productivity to exercise a lot and stay on top of your physical game it kind of helps with your mental game so sure. i'm a big proponent of it i just don't watch i don't have enough time to watch to watch much you know <laughs> go home and it's it's just like more science and looking after the kids there's not much time in my life for, for doing sports i'm afraid sure well with that in mind we appreciate the time that you've taken out to speak <laughs> with me today and my last kind of question for you is it when i look up at the sky the thing that sounds me the most is that i'm looking at stars that very well could have died a long time ago, but because they're so far away that we haven't lost that light yet. Um, what's the most What's the most fascinating thing to you when you look up at the sky as of right now? If you went outside, looked up at the sky tonight, and you said, wow, this is it, what would that be? I think I always just wonder who else is out there mm-hmm. and and trying to make sense of what might be an incredibly cosmic coincidence that we exist. I try to be, yeah, I try to be very agnostic about the question of life. There might be, you know, civilizations, life all over the place, but some reason we're not seeing it. That's, that's makes me wonder. My brain starts thinking of explanations for that when I look up at the stars or um, perhaps either explanation is that we are pretty much alone or very, very rare at least. And then that makes you wonder about you know, what was different, what happened here in the story of our planet that doesn't happen elsewhere? Because it seems like we live in a fairly typical part of the galaxy, for instance. So, yeah, when I look at the galaxy, I always wonder about, you know, what our place in it and who else might be out there. Awesome. Well, best of luck to you and your research in the Cool Worlds Lab. Definitely go and give Cool Worlds the YouTube channel uh, subscription because it is definitely worth your time. I spent a lot of time driving, and that's how I, I get my science in for the day. So that's that's awesome. David, thanks so much for joining us today. You've been listening to The Space Between wherever you get your podcasts.